your head will be chopped after four o'clock today. I felt, tasted and smelled death and I cried. So the guy next to me put his hand on my shoulder and said, stop, don't die before you die. From Aura Studios, this is The Line of Fire with me, Ramita Navai. I've been working in conflict zones around the world for nearly two decades. And in this series, I talk to fellow journalists about covering war and the life-changing moments of confronting death. Welcome to The Line of Fire. In this episode of The Line of Fire, my guest is the award-winning Afghan journalist and documentary maker, Shweb Sharifi. This is the second part of my chat with Shweb. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I'd recommend starting with that first. Once you hear how Shweb smuggled a camera into a former football stadium to expose the Taliban's public executions, you'll get a real sense of the man who's now about to tell us the incredible story of when he was kidnapped by the Taliban. Now, Shweb, you've faced death many times in your work, but I want to ask you about the one moment that you were convinced that you were going to die. It was December 2009. You were covering a story about the Taliban and you had travelled to Kunar province in eastern Afghanistan. Talk me through the start of your day. It was a day, it was a beautiful sunny day and like I'm sitting in front of you starting to confess on so many friends, one of which when I used to go to difficult and dangerous places, I didn't tell my mother and my wife because until I returned they would really feel bad and I didn't want them to worry. It is hard to convince my wife and my mother that, look, I'm not a reckless person. I'm just putting some mitigations there if I'm going to a front line. So instead of that, I would say I'm going to X instead I was going to Y. So I'm, I'm often, a lot of the time, mentioned that I was going to a peaceful part of Afghanistan when I had gone that day to Kunar, which the Americans had tagged as the Valley of Death. So I had gone to really see there was a new wave of fighting Obama had just deployed 30,000 troops and wanted to see how it's reflected back on the Taliban. I received a call from my wife, said, where you are? And I said, well, you know, I'm in a very comfortable, lovely place. So I told you, and she said, I had a bad dream. Go home now. I said, look, don't trust dreams. She said, no, go and sit next to your mom now because I had a horrible dream. Something happened to you. I said, OK, I will. 30 minutes after that call, I was taken by the Taliban. <laughs> so I'm not superstitious at all, although my grandma used to tell me you should uh, interpret dreams and do some dreams that mean something. <laughs> but I'm so scared of my wife's dreams now. That I'm telling her, can you avoid me dreaming about me in your dreams? Because So um, it was in the morning. I mean, that happened after my wife's dream, just approaching to a little valley. An old man, like a dervish, just came, hugged me and was shouting, I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to let you go. I said, what is happening to me, these people? 
and that man disappeared. I'm, I'm again saying I'm not superstitious. I'm what not were you stel- doing? You were walking in this. I'm valley. walking in this valley. Where with were you all, going uh, to? So I had all camera and everything, so packed and blended in. We were uh, walked. Uh, so you'd spoken to your wife, who'd had this prophetic dream. You didn't listen to her. Yes, <laughs> so it and serves then, you right. And then you 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 left your lodgings and you're work, walking through a valley. And this old man comes to just yes, randomly because we had a car you. waiting for us there, and, okay. and I we had to, a bit of the road. Uh, we had to walk, and this man out of nowhere and came and was so pushing me back, and I just pushed him away and just got in and. We got into the got car. into the car, and it was only a few minutes down the valley that we were stopped at a checkpoint. Who all appeared to be in military uniform, like the Afghan National Army. We were taken out of the car and said our commander wants to talk to you. So we had they took us away with all our camera, everything. And when we went and we saw all those men, long beard, long hair, so those typical um, talibs, mountain Taliban. So at that point, you realized that this wasn't the Afghan National Army. Yes, at that point. we. Uh, in fact, uh, I saw that one man that had an RPG, the strap. The rocket uh, yeah, the, R- the, the rocket prepared uh, grenade. The strap was from uh, a traditional belt. It wasn't a proper special fabric that the gun strap is. It wasn't like American yes, Army so I, I, material. Yes, I, so I, I whispered to my friends, I said, guys, be careful, don't say many things, much because I suspect they may not be uh, the army. And we just within minutes, we realized that they were all the Taliban. And still they said, hello, welcome to a valley. What are you doing here? I said, well, we are exactly here to see the Taliban and cover the war. He answered, okay, carry on and talk us. And they said it will be only 40 minutes we would take you to our base and then you're more than welcome to stay in this village and talk to people. So the 40 minutes walked into a steepy mountain and they said another 40 minutes, another 40 minutes, another 40 minutes. And it took eight hours. They walked you eight hours eight through mountains. Eight hours through uh, the mountains. Each time, every single time, we were not prepared to walk for eight hours into the mountain, but I was asking how long... And they would say 40 minutes. They would not even say 41 minutes. And when it got dark, on two occasions, we heard sort of drones above us and they shouted at each other and said, donkey mood. And everyone jumped to the floor on, and they said, be donkey mood. I said, what do you mean by that? They said, okay, the Americans should think we are donkeys because they can see from the floor. So act like you're a donkey. I said, I'm not, I don't know how to. So just like a four-legged position, just be like crawl like uh, you could be mistaken by no, a sheep like or a donkeys. Comedy. Yeah. No, they were, they meant it crazily. They thought that, okay, if you on sort of a four-leg position from these heat detectors would see that maybe your goat or donkeys. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, did you do that? Well, I had to because I believed <laughs> it. I said, "Well, I, I can't get bombed here." I mean, in that moment, <laughs> could you see the absurdity of it, or were you too scared? I was too scared. Mm. As I was really scared in that moment, not from the Taliban, but I was really scared from the base because American base was only about 300 meters away. So you were scared of the drones? I was really scared of the drones because mm. I had heard and covered stories of the drones bombing constantly that area. Yeah. So fast forward down the line when it became too dark and we are almost to the peak of the mountain and it started to snow. It was um, beginning of really harsh winter. 
they started to uh, all of a sudden all that friendly conversation became so hostile and started shouting and said do not move and we're gonna frisk you so at this time i immediately whispered so we were at, just at the edge of a cliff i told we were three people two other journalists all three of us were assigned by a british london-based media outlet uh, mm -hmm. to do a story about the taliban so i whispered i said threw your phones away because we had some contacts i had the call of my wife that had called me in that phone so and then They said that your spies, they were shouting, your spies, you're here, you've brought, they kept saying GPS, you've brought the, these drone tracing bomb GPS because... Uh, so at this point, you're at the top of a mountain. How many people in your team? Three. It was three of us and three about uh, 10 Taliban. Right. And... And you're not in a base at the moment, you're just at the top of a mountain. The top of the mountain, no right. base. And... Uh, And it's dark and it's cold. It's it's really dark and it's cold. And this is the moment uh, we we because they were so friendly all the way until it got dark. We didn't get the feeling that they really are taking us into um, captivity. We thought that really they really you trusted are. them. Yeah, we try. I mean, we couldn't do anything. We couldn't turn around anyway. Heavily armed men. So they took us. Another 30 minutes now, it's in a hostile way and pushing us and constantly swearing at us, all the swearing words and saying that you're spies of the Americans and you have brought GPS. So GPS is that satellite tracing. Apparently, there are some satellite tracing um, like trackers. trackers that yeah. uh, these drones would find and bomb. And I have never until today, I haven't seen it but they were they were saying that you have brought trackers into the village to get it bombed and you're all uh, spies so they took us and then from the tent the rest disappeared and two uh, we could feel two walking behind us they walked in until there was a big flat gigantic rock like a flat wall said turn around against this so our faces against the, this rock and queued as lined as so that is the moment Ramita so they exactly queued us for uh, execution mm. it, that I felt tasted and smelled death with all my senses mm. I was it's the moment you're ready that bullets would come and pierce into you and I unfortunately had gone beyond that gone beyond so I came dead so two things I really saw that I'd never experienced before so at this time I was married and I had um, two kids mm. so I felt my weakness of a, a dad immediately that two sons so like I, I was also amazed with the power of brain that brings in that screen against that rock that the whole future of your child That, that would live without a father. I was not thinking about myself. Nobody else. Oh, those two little boys. Oh, my God, what's going to happen to them? That's coming. So that old story is coming and it fast forward and it's being reflected to you. What I also noticed when I looked down that my body was shaking with, if I say equivalent of that would be when your washing machine goes so mad that it's jolting the whole building. Yeah. I I wouldn't believe that a human body would have that much power that would shake. 
shaked so massively. And I looked at my two fellow <clears throat> colleagues. They were not even shaking. They were standing to be hit. And <clears throat> somehow I was really affected more, shaking mm. massively. And it's, it's uh, perhaps in many cultures, particularly in Afghan culture, for men, it's the last thing would be you would cry. Mm. And I cried. Uh, and uh, so the guy next to me, my fellow colleague, he put his hand on my shoulder and said, stop. Well, whatever will happen will happen now. Just don't die before you die. Just stop whatever would happen. That stop will really switch <laughs> that shaking off. I really stopped. And we, when I stopped, I sensed they were whispering to each other. They were discussing whether to shoot them now or later. And Your we, captors. So two captors, we could hear them. And then they walked towards us and I gave a bit of eye. Still, it's a hope or maybe are they coming closer to execute it. It also reflects all those executions you have seen because you have seen it. Perhaps the other two hadn't seen it and I knew that what it means to turn around with a gun against your head. Somehow, you know what caused them that, okay, let's do another thorough search. And they searched us and said, okay, perhaps we would take you for tonight leave it to the commission's decision or military commission's decision you are spies but uh, we will take you to your place and it was at top of the mountain really high mountain there was an luckily unoccupied barn so there were no cows or animals there that we were luckily I mean we could have locked us with animals there but we were locked there so that was only one moment and, and why do you think they didn't kill you in that moment well, I mean, if you're asking, uh, if uh, if I ask this for somebody in Afghanistan, they would say that maybe because your days were left, still you had days, something happened. Fate. Yeah, fate. Fate that they thought, okay, let's do a, a double check. And they did the double check. Well, three And they days, were looking for this tracker. They, were, they thought, yes. you know, they thought you were spies and they were actually looking for a they tracker. They were looking for a tracker. Mm -hmm. And they when, they when this time they did a thorough check, they found an iPod with my friend and I was so cross with a friend that I had told him threw away everything in the first moment. Yes. I think his iPod was so dear to him he hadn't thrown it away. Yes. And Which instructions you've given me to throw if you ever get caught <laughs> throw everything. Yes. And said what is this? And he said uh, and luckily on the screen I saw there was one app digital Quran. You know, so you play it, it reads the Holy Quran to you. And yes. I said, well, this is a Quran. And, and bang, played a bit of that. And God, so, just some quick thinking. Yes, and said, okay, so got that and took us to this um, barn. And we went through further investigations. And two of my friends had some cash with them that was also taken. Everything were taken, uh, including my camera and a very heavy tripod. So we have two of our captors inside and two, um, or I don't know how many outside. Inside the barn with Inside you. the barn. And this is the moment we... And these are armed talibs. These are armed talibs having all uh, uh, guns. So the one, two inside had one PK, we call it. It's a big machine gun. And one is P, uh, AK-47 or what we call in Afghanistan, Kalashnikov. And uh, our captors were more 
tired and exhausted than us. They all they had also worked for eight and ten hours, so we had sort of a wooden place to sleep, and they had their traditional beds. They went to bed ahead of us, so our captors who were meant to be watching us, they went, then we could hear them snoozing, and I was like... You could hear them snoring. Snoring, and we could hear them snoring, and in front of us, just there, and two of my friends said, wow, the two who were with me said, let's grab the gun, the two guns unattended by the wall, and let's kill the two and run. And I said, no. And they said, yes, let's do it. I said, hold on, hold on. Let's make it a strategy. One person should be in charge here. We can vote. I know I hate you because not having thrown your iPod there, it would, could have killed us. And I know if we hate each other, but let's put hating after if we survive. Now let's work really based on a strategy. We really need to have one person that should act on our behalf. And they said, well, that's the second thing. We have to kill them. I said, no. That small AK is near to me and the big gun is there. If you rush towards that big gun, I'll grab this gun. I will kill you too. And I would make history that captors killed each other. Because I don't know if we kill these two, how many are beyond that door? We walked for eight hours. It's full of all these armed men here. Why would we, maybe there's a 10% chance that they would not even kill us. They would not even execute us. Look, they were going to execute us, but they didn't. Something happened. There's a little ray of hope we may survive and they, you will end it by killing these men. <laughs> so, and, so you were having this argument while your captors were soundly sleeping. Yes. With their God knows maybe they were pretending that, yeah. And machine guns on the floor. <laughs> yes, the machine guns on the floor. So in in a in, in a small barn. In a small barn, yeah. And they didn't they couldn't hear you. Uh, well, I hope I mean maybe they didn't but uh so they were uh, speaking Pashto and we were speaking amongst ourselves Dari and uh, English, mix of that and a bit of Arabic. So, uh, so they were speaking Pashto language, and you were speaking a mixture of English and the other main language yes. spoken in Afghanistan. So we which mixed is Dari. It exactly to confuse mm-hmm. uh, the, the atmosphere. In case they could uh, so hear. Again, thanks to the languages as well, because yeah. uh, the other person I was with was not from Afghanistan. Um, so we were conversing English, but when we were in captivity, we started conversing in Arabic because in speaking English would further like justify you're in a spy. But if you speak in, in Arabic, it will at least reduce the thing what they say, you know, spies of the West and look, we are. So that language really <laughs> helps in every you. situation. The next day. So wait, hang on a minute. So how did you convince your two colleagues that you shouldn't kill your captors and run? Well, first, by warning them that I would jump and grab that gun. I, uh, I, I mean, I, of course, I wouldn't have done it. I've never killed an uh, animal, uh, nothing. But I really wanted them to make them. Uh, and then I said, well, let's make a decision. We have to choose one person because they are very soon are going to come in and interrogate us. And um, we could make an excuse of language or something and let one of us talk so that we are on the same page. And uh, the two chose me. Okay, we agreed that I would be sort of um, uh, undeclared leader, not to tell the Taliban that I was the leader, but I was the 
the person that would converse with them more because I spoke both Dari Pashto and Arabic. And you could make the decisions. Yeah, because they, they, both of them had not that much of experience and exposure to Taliban and Taliban territory as much as I had. Mm-hmm. So in a way, I convinced them that uh, let's, <clears throat> let's be... Uh, you were the man. Uh, yeah, I should be the man so that we're on the same page. So later that night, we were served chicken soup for three of us, two legs and a bowl full of soup. So we ate and the meat was so hard that it was not even touchable. So roughly boiled, but of course we didn't touch it. And that Did was... you complain? <laughs> <laughs> we didn't complain, but what we learned, so if I say the second night, we would serve again the chicken soup. And the second night, I was a bit like, on these legs, the same legs that were brought the previous <laughs> night. So I broke one very hardly to see. And the third night, the same legs were brought again. So at least I discovered something that those, the, the message was either eat them or or you will keep having the same <laughs> chicken uh, legs. Chicken legs. Uh, again. As long as we keep you alive. Yes. Um, so interrogations are started and uh, there was, they kept saying, um, that you were spies and we just said that no, you were journalists and in a way we were come here to tell the unseen and untold the story of you people. What is it that you fighting for and what's your story? Mm. We didn't uh, obviously mention the, uh, that we were commissioned by a British, a, a, newspaper. A British newspaper because that would have really may mm. not have helped, but that didn't help. So they said that they would share the details of investigation with commission. And so what day is this now? So it was in the night one okay. that um, they did that. And so this is the first night? It's the very first when you, night. When you convinced your colleagues not to kill your captors? Yes. Mm-hmm. And the next day I wasn't I was still not sure about how much my colleagues listened to me. So the two of the captors one's name was Kochi, the other was Usman. During the day I saw them and I said, "Look guys, appreciate thank you very much for guarding us at night, but uh, could I advise you? I mean, how are you trained?" And the two guys said, "You know what? We have been commandeered." In fact, I'm a I'm a shepherd, but because once a month in our village, I have to be sort of the local fighter. It is sort of a rotation. I'm not a so train he, guy. So he was a shepherd who'd been forced to join the well, Taliban. Well, it's not forced. It is in in the village you live. It's the Taliban. You either have to pay equivalent of one fighting soldier's sort of salary or something, or do you a rotation like if or you, you give a young like you join the army right, when it's young uh, man compulsory. To... Yeah. So I said, I would give you a word of advice that, I mean, if I was a trained man, I would put my gun under my pillow when I sleep. Because what if somebody is attacking us from outside, so your gun is next to you? In a way, I did, just wanted those people, do not leave your guns unattended. Because Wow, <laughs> so you, you were so scared that your colleagues would try and kill your captors and make the situation worse. much worse, mm-hmm. that you were giving your captors advice not to leave their gun unattended. But <laughs> to guard you. Yeah, I, I, of course I couldn't say that. Please don't leave your guns unattended. My friends may kill you. But I said, <laughs> look, the traditional way in Afghanistan is you put your gun under your pillow. You sleep with it. And if somebody comes in 
grabs it, so it wakes you up. That's the best place. And I said, this is how would we do in Kabul and elsewhere? It's just a word of advice. And they did the next night. How did they react to you no, no, giving did, them advice? No, no, no. It's again how you converse and how you appear to be really convincing. And it is also the beginning of bonding. You really have to... They are human beings. And I was believing that we survived that against the rock execution. Now we have a chance to use all of our strengths as unarmed, but experienced human beings to see if we could make human contacts and connections that may help to and buy were, some mercy. And you were trying to get them to trust you. Yes, exactly. And in fact, I was freshly, just a few months before that, was trained it's called hostile environment training. It's first aid on how to survive in a front line. If you're yes. hit, how would you stop someone's bleeding or yourself until the first aid arrives? And the immediate people didn't really appear to be very trained. And I was fearing, what if really we're ambushed or we are hit, we're bombed, how these people could take care of us if they want to? <laughs> I asked them, do you know if, if somebody's shot, how would you stop bleeding? And if there's a fighting, because they also there was a rival valley next door, and what if we are ambushed? And I said, if, uh, if we are on the way and we are ambushed and I'm hit or your friend is hit, what would you do? So Osman said, well, I will fight till death and fire. And I said, well, until you fight till death, your friend will have died by then because you would be bleeding. How Do you know how to save somebody who's bleeding? He said, well, no. I said, okay, let's organize a first aid <laughs> training course. The next. It was the, the afternoon of day two that I called for, um, trained them how to apply tourniquet. So he, hang on a minute. So day two of being held hostage by the Taliban and you were teaching your Taliban captors basic first aid training. Yes. Have I got this right? <laughs> <laughs> That's true, yeah. That was for two reasons. So, hey, but, but wait, how, so how, how are you managing to do this while also living in fear that these men may kill you? Well, so this is all your the very last means that, uh, that you try to apply to buy trust and you don't know what's happening behind that wall, the, who are sitting in that commission. Maybe if you buy some mercy around these people, maybe their opinion may change. So you're in absolute survival mode. Exactly, you're an absolute survival mode. And that training is also because uh, it's a mitigation that you're handled by untrained people. There have been instances where there have been failed rescue attempts. I was so scared of a rescue attempt. I was just saying, I hope, oh my God, I hope there's no rescue attempt because literally a lot of rescue attempts that had happened, journalists were killed because the way they position you that the rescue attempts happen, you will get wounded or killed. And then if you get wounded, you're in the mercy of these people and they don't know how to stop bleeding. So I had to <laughs> train them where it was first aid training. So that really bounced, in a way, back to me. So the night in the second night, it was Osman and Kuchi. And Kuchi came and whispered and said, my wife is pregnant. So I was like, I wasn't sure to say congratulations. I said, what if I say congratulations? He may shoot me. Maybe what is the context here? Shall I say I'm sorry? <laughs> or I'm, I, I, ju I just look at him and said nothing. I said, maybe this is safe. So I just look. He said, but she's not feeling well. 
and could you help? I said, I'm sorry, I should have explained very well that I'm not a doctor, that I, that first aid training that I gave you, I was given that training that doesn't mean I'm a doctor. I'm sorry, mm. I'm not a doctor. Mm. And he said, no, 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 I know you're not a doctor, but you are very good in that. At least you must have gone to a hospital with your wife. You must have seen a doctor in your life, but we haven't. You may, you may have gone to a hospital with your mother, so you may know something that we don't know and she's pregnant and she feel felt really dizzy and uh, headache and very last months of being due like um after week 35 mm. in in other terms so we finishing month 8 and we had our first Eight kid with some paracetamol and also my grandma used to make some herbs really found uh, in the mountains we call it gorba khurak it's a literal translation is the cut lava plant mm -hmm. it has got a very strong smell super strong in uh, it uh, if you boil it we believe that this stabilizes your blood pressure so i thought maybe a bit of that help and I said boil that and add some garlic as well and give these uh, tablets as well this painkiller so he disappeared for 10-12 hours and the next day he came in was super happy and said that really helps and my wife is feeling better now and he also said that after she felt better it was 3 or 4 in the, uh, in the morning that she woke up and woke my mother and myself we all cried and prayed for your freedom I said, wow, okay, at least it's the beginning of some. And I said, well, don't try for, pray for freedom, do free as in. He said, I'm sorry, I'm such a, just, I'm just a single powerless person. I can, if they order me to shoot you, I will have, still have to shoot you. But all we can do, my mother really cried and mm. uh, hopefully uh, that would work. So your Taliban captors were just uneducated village boys. Yes, Mm. And uh, these little things really bought us. So they mm. were still too loyal to their commanders. But what uh, happened? So, so so they were saying, look, there's nothing we can yeah, do, but we feel bad about yeah, this. Yeah, we felt ba bad about this, that you you seem to be like good people. Mm. So we, f we pray that if, if you're really genuine good people, if you're not spies, may God free you from this situation. So I mean, uh, at that moment then, did you think, okay, this is it. We are going to get killed. Every moment of that, that when when they come, the way they ask their questions, the way you see that how difficult it is to convince them, you they're thinking, the, their understanding of how the world works and being objective and why a journalist will, should travel to these areas. And for them, any suspicious person coming to a valley as a spy was unreconcilable. Particularly when they come on day night two and night three, you would see that they're still in the same place, same position when they were. Every moment where we were waiting that, mm -hmm. and we had heard that this military commissions in the past would they would, the way they would do their decisions, and it was just in the beginning of that surge of the mm. troops sent to Afghanistan. So everything uh, was against us, but these little bits helped us. So that uh, night, I had Osman. So these were the two that we conversed more. The others didn't show their faces quite a lot. If they would come, they would come with a covered face. So Osman came. I mean, I'm talking about this as an example of naivety there. And Osman came and he was crying, crying so much and in, in holding my feet and crying. And I just sat holding and said... Holding your say, feet? Yeah. And I said, what happened, Osman? He said, I feel so sorry of... of 
for the judgment day, I said, what is it, the judgment day, the day and the resurrection when we in Islam believe that uh, so we will be judged by God for our deeds in the judgment day? I said, what is it? He said, you know, I think I've realized that I think you are good people and we are your captors and we will be judged by God for doing that this sort of wrong thing. And in my heart, I said, wow, that's good. He's feeling bad. So maybe he has a plan for escape or something. I said, well, I wish it wasn't the situation. So, And he's now pleading, for God's sake, please promise that you pardon me. You forgive me. And he's so serious. He's jolting me. What I, I said, what are you saying? No, no, no. On the judgment day, promise that on the judgment day, when I am tried for this crime of watching on you in captivity, you tell me now that you have pardoned me, you've forgiven me, so that I'm not judged for this thing. And I said, oh my God, look at my, I'm crying for my prison. He even wants to have a secure judgment day, for God's sake. So I said, okay, you're pardoned. He's, no, 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 say, say it from the bottom of your heart. I said, do you want me to write a letter to God? Go and bring a pen. I will sign that, that I've forgiven you on the judgment day. You will not be put in trial for me. You have done nothing wrong to me. You were sparing him from hell. Yes, I said, of course, if for this crime, I promise I give my word that you're spared for whatever you have done to us. And when I really was so sad and I shouted, said, yes, if you want that, you got it, bring a pen, I'll write it. And he calmed down, said, okay, thank God, it's okay. My, my judgment day is secured as well. And then came again this mosque, the non-mosque Taliban, and said, look, on on the first day when we had done some fresking, we took uh, from each individual, we checked, we took all your belongings. We realized that you had some cash as well. So uh, can you tell us how much cash you had? Because uh, we, have, we put it in a secure place and we will give it back to you if and when you're released. So the good thing is we had agreed that only one person will speak. And my colleague said, oh, please tell them that I had 30,000 Kaldars, which was about $300 back then. And my other friend said in Arabic to me that tell him that I had $1,500. Osman took it. And I said, no, you had nothing. So I looked at them, our captors, I said, we only had about $300 in Pakistani rupees, which uh, Mr. A took it. And I looked, I made an eye contact with this man, and I looked at his eyes and I said, we had nothing else. So in a more meaningful way that look... <laughs> so one of your captors had stolen money and you were protecting So they had him. individually fresked us, yeah. but he had, none of them had declared the cash. And, and why were you protecting... Osman, your captor. But it was it was not protecting him. It was just building little bits and putting little bricks f- to of trust of trust, so that so this, maybe you that were would working, help. You were These working were, on him now. Yes, I would say in a in extreme situation, use any means that you think 
probably could help for uh, for survival. So, so he a, may feel that he owes you now. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so they went, and then um, then I told Osman that look. You know why I didn't declare the money? Because amongst all your friends, you seem to be the most pious and real man and brave. And I see the essence of manhood in you. So I just thought, because your family really deserves that. It wasn't still appreciative. I said, do you know how much is that? He said, well, you know, there were like 15 of them. I said, but do you know how much is that? He said, no, I've never had that money. I said, that money is called dollars. And with that, you could buy at least two or three cattles of goats. You could have like 50, 60 goats in this mountain. He almost had a heart attack. <laughs> what do you mean? 50 goats? I said, yes, that's quite a lot of money in this uh, area. And still, I didn't say that, you know, against that money, you should help. I just said, we just we all think that you're a good man. You should have that money. I, I would never. And then he again turned with his stupid question and said, put your hand in your heart in like an Afghan way that even in the judgment day, up until the judgment day and beyond, you have forgiven that money so I wouldn't owe you people and that is all mine. And I said, that's as clean as we have. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird saying in Afghanistan. And we said, that is for you. It can be as clean as your mother's milk. It is how we mm. say it. Mm. So it's like, it will be, it's all yours. No, it will never be claimed, even in the judgment day. And that really helped. So uh, that Osman really helped us later, that uh, you very soon will be cross-examined. Your investigation, they may come in to ask for a contact, and then they will call the contact and cross-examine your, uh, the information you had given. And amongst us, we decided one of our friends, we knew that he was really good to manage the situation, who I would introduce as my uncle. But I didn't know his number, so my fellow captive had the number. They would ask the number from me. And it took me hours to memorize that because I had to say that this is my dad's or uncle's number. But also we, by any means, we had to inform them what we had said in the investigation. So you were going to give your captors a number of a friend or relative that could help you. Yes. And you needed to get a message to this friend or relative that you were being held by the Taliban and that your lives were in danger. Our lives are in danger. Yeah. Not just that, but this is what we have said in the interview. Yes. Because when they cross So your answers match. Yes. So that the, 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 the bit we were worried about was our association to a Western newspaper. Yes. Which we had denied. The rest yes. we were all journalists. So there was one bit that was really, in fact, it was that bit that we were really worried about that um, that friend would know. But before them, well, I had to convince Osman that he really should bring me a phone or sh- in some way that we have to inform this man. So I told this man that, look, I have, my mother would be so worrying where I am. I had to promise her that I would call her every evening about our safety. Can I just, is there any way you could call my mother? Just say that Schwab is with his friends and he's all fine. And he, anyhow, he managed to bring in a phone. And he said, he would be watching me and watching others so that they, nobody sees me, catches me uh, being on the phone. And I'm calling this man saying, hey, so-and-so, I'm speaking with the three mixes of languages, Dari, Pashto, English, to confuse everything. And this man feels that I'm just a dodgy caller. He hangs up and I call him back. I'm saying, hey, how's everything? 
he hangs up and the third time I called him, I named his wife and it was an ex-wife as well. So it was even worse. I said, look, that's your ex-wife. Fortunately or unfortunately, I'm a friend of your ex-wife, but also a friend of... Why didn't you say this is Schwab? I knew his ex-wife, but he was the friend of other the oh, captors. I see. So he wasn't my direct friend. Yes. But we all knew him. He was a friend him. of your colleague and you thought this is the man that could help yes, us. Yes, exactly. Okay. So uh, I said, whatever I'm saying, make a note of it. Some of that may not make sense. And then I would switch back and say, can you take the phone to my mother? Because I want to say, so with a mix of uh, languages. languages and coded uh, terms, I said exactly where we were, what we had said in our investigation. And that was passed. So uh, Osman deleted the number and said, please do not ask them to not to call back. And I did that. The third day, we, were, we gave them this number for cross-examining as well. On the third day, Osman entered and called me out and normally when they had a news announced they would announce it indoor and this time he took me out and um, he said look I have a bad news and a good news I said okay um, it was around 10 o'clock in the morning and or third day I said okay tell me the, the bad news first and then please me with the bad news he said no look be serious the commission has decided that exactly these weddings, in fact, he said that today at four o'clock, just after four o'clock, uh, that uh, the commission has decided that you will be executed. And today, just after four o'clock, you will be first. Your head will be chopped just after four o'clock today. So... A bit of that sh shaking, but not that level, came and I felt that all my body, I could see my hands, everything turned pale. And um, I felt it. I really felt death. It's, you really feel it. it not numbness, but meaning, uh, meaningless. Everything loses meaning and it's... And you don't want to even ask more questions. So if you're after death, what... Very, I th I gathered all my energy just to throw this question, saying, "Okay, then, what could be the good news if I'm beheaded?" Then he said, "The good news is that I have decided, even if I lose my head, I'm not gonna let them chop your head." Still, I was composing myself, but getting a bit of energy with that the second bit of the good news, and I said, "Okay, thank you very much." So I hope it's not just to me. I want all three of us. And he said, no, 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 it's only for you. And I said, you know, it's not fair. Could I, could you, could we decide which one if you can only help one? He said, no, I can only help one. And I have only chosen you because I have seen that you're a pious man. You're really um, honest and as a, you're a good, dignified man, exactly the way in his wording he said he said, it cannot be transferred this over to any of your other two colleagues. I said, okay, then hurry up. Tell me, what is the escape plan? How are you going to take me out? What is the escape plan? And he said, there's no escape plan. And I said, then what is this? How you can spare me from that beheading? He said, well, the moment that you're taken to that um, beheading table or execution table, I'll shoot one bullet at your forehead and you will be gone in seconds, 
and I'll spare you that unbearable, better, difficult, uh, torturous uh, beheading. And that's my offer. Either take it or not. That's all I can do. That's the, the most I can do in this. The chances are they may kill me for after having shot you because the way they want to do that. So it it even further reaffirmed that they they are they were serious and uh, I had to now it's the moment well you're dying but how you should die situation that um, so you have to really process at a very very high speed of whether to take it not to take it what to do and he went on saying that we had brought somebody who was working at the base of the Americans, which was down the valley, and it was a very blunt dagger. He gave me very graphics that it is a blunt dagger, and it's, uh, I hope it's not too graphic, that they do it from the back, from behind. Mm. Uh, so I felt it exactly when he was giving, and I said, look, Osman, fine. Please, yes, I think that is a favor you're doing if that's what you're doing. And I really want to be shot rather than beheaded. He walked away and I shouted. I said, Osman, Osman, please, can you make sure that do not just shoot, just make sure they really are seriously taking me to beheading table. What if they're just out of fun or out of uh, acting or out of torture they just pretend to be taking me and you bang you shoot me <laughs> what if it's a mock execution yeah, it's, what is a mock execution what if they mm. just he t uh, looked back and said that's your problem there's no joke there's no sense of humor here there's no place we either do it or not do it i assure you that you will not be shot mistakenly Mm. Uh, rest assured I entered until today that I'm speaking about it I entered there I didn't announce the bad news to them you didn't tell I didn't tell them your two because, colleagues that because, you, they were about to yes, you were all about to be executed yes because in fact the thing that it changed me perhaps it changed me for good was after that that mm. whatever situation you are the power of just now this moment if you have enjoy that how, however you can captivity but if you can live without a worry don't worry about the next hour or next hour they had like five or six more hours yeah and i didn't want them to be worrying thinking about all those agony and fear and families and why not they were laughing they were joking when i entered one of them was reading a book uh, and the, the other was uh, throwing pastoral poetry and asked me to join and I just want them to have the rest of the remaining hours of their lives. And I didn't tell them. I didn't tell them about now that that was uh, the decision. And uh, um, so, again, our days were left and faith that um, that cross-examining worked and they spared us. And so hang on a minute. You had hours to live. Um, and now you were just waiting for the Taliban heads to call the contact that you had given and interrogate your contact. And then what happened? I was, uh, while they were having their own time and reading book and when writing poetry, I was looking every moment at that wooden door right in front of me, just a little bit above one meter high door that any moment they would enter and I will be first. 
I was not thinking about myself. It's perhaps I don't know how I felt if I was single. That's, that's a big question because I have been through so many of similar dangerous moments when I was single and it had never been so difficult or I would I don't know why I think I sometimes I call having kids and being married as a weakness because I kept thinking about my wife and th scenarios and scenarios and scenarios okay this may happen happen to them and uh, how hard would it be so that it's you I didn't feel like wow I'm losing what a fabulous life I would have uh, had a wonderful life and a very and a weird things that were coming in my mind. I mm. always, when I brush my teeth, unfortunately, some of the things gets attached to you. So I was that brushing teeth things were coming in front of my eyes. That oh my god, you know how many times I took care of my teeth and and I wasted like five or ten minutes of my life. I could have listened to music or watched a movie or something. But you're having these strange thoughts, and your two colleagues are oblivious, unaware. And you are waiting for the moment for someone to come in to take you away to be executed. What happened when somebody did enter? They entered. Um, it became longer. They should have entered at four. And they entered later in the dark. And uh, I started checking again that I'll be and the editor or not away. And then they said, OK, the commission has uh, concluded that you're not spies. Wow, that was a massive great news. But there's always a bad. But you have been tagged as people of the tarmac. Thus, you need to be uh, continue to be in captivity. What's people of the tarmac? People of the tarmac, they were referring... Um, city people. Uh, city people. And they continued saying, so we sat and had a conversation, and we continued after that, that they said, you people of the tarmac, you city people... For generations, whatever resources that governments had, you had it. You built your schools, you built your clinics, you had tarmac roads. And we have always been forgotten and left here. And you have taken and sucked all those resources from us. It could have been us and we could have been in a different situation. Most of our uh, houses, though, we do not have proper windows the only thing that has changed in our valley is from sword to those uh, English rifles now to AK-47. The rest, uh, not many of us have seen a doctor. This is what we can do to take revenge from people of the tarmac. It's Ramit Navai here, and thank you for listening to my show. I hope you agree that these stories are not only powerful, but important. As I speak to some incredible journalists from around the world about what they've learned from working in dangerous places and how it's changed their perspective, it would be great to get your help in sharing their personal stories. So please do spread the word and subscribe, rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts from. I hope you continue to be inspired by the series and I look forward to you joining me for more episodes. Shweb, how did that experience change you of living hour to hour with the knowledge 
that you're going to get executed. How did it affect you psychologically? I think psychologically, I'm, I've become a person of more of the person of the moment rather than the day or the year or the week. So like fully enjoy this moment I'm sitting with Ramita, that water, do not worry a lot about what happens next and enjoying every, the, the current moment. It's a lot of currentness, if I can explain it well. It is just that present moment too, because it's everyone of that is valuable. I know that Every minute was like days while people must have been outside, fortunate, doing something but not appreciating. So it's directly affected the way you live your life. It's directly changed the way you live your life. Definitely it has. Has it changed your perspective on life? Do you look at life differently? Well, it has made me not more reckless, but it has made me to really think about present time, whether it is a good situation or bad situation, deal with that. Do not think particularly about fears and worries, whether another moment is coming or not, that's another thing. So this is the moment, uh, very presentness, I would say. Mm-hmm. And what did it teach you? What, did, what have you learned from it? What did it, did it teach you about yourself and about life? I think... I th- the thing that it has taught me is that humanness that you know despite totally I mean that connection that bit of connection with Osman and Kuchi has really taught me a lot in a weird way I've really apart from the commander that I haven't forgotten, uh, forgiven him but I've forgiven every our, every single one of our captors and in a way... How can you forgive them? They were going to kill you. I think that term that they use, they really, I have to confess, they really affected me that we were really people of tarmac. I mean, um, you sometimes you're in a your bubble of the six million population of Kabul and, and in that cities and how really life is and what it really means, how much it really affects this unfair balance of power, unfair development... And you having had uh, uh, access to good school, um, to hospitals, while the same country having lived there, so many uh, were deprived. And as a journalist, so perhaps that must have really pushed me further to tell stories from unseen and unheard and under less covered or what we call it uh, underreported areas. I mean, I think this is quite unusual, Shweb. Um, I think you're in the minority of people here who go through an experience like this. And it sounds like you haven't come out angry, but you've actually come out with more empathy. Would you say that's correct? Well, that's correct. Apart from the commander, that he really was the man behind it and he, he could have released us and he didn't. But others, I found them... Um, just normal human beings like us being in the wrong place, having grown up in a really uh, in a de- full deprivation, deprived mm. of education, deprived of other me- economical means, and with a bit of some intervention, they could have been different people. Did any good come of this experience? Um, 
I I think it reaffirmed. I had a belief. I still I'm strong believer that uh, I'm a strong believer in love. By the way, love in um, many sorts and ways. Mm. It really reaffirmed that if you really a true truthfulness and a reflecting love and appreciating the other side and really listening and reflecting love could really help you in many ways but this was a deeply traumatic experience what about the scars it left behind yes the scars well the immediate for immediate months it was there i had nightmares in black and white every single detail were there mm. obviously it took me months of uh, a lot of um, therapy and counseling did you did you have therapy I, I, and counseling i did i tried so many and didn't disappear and um so you thanks, mean the trauma didn't disappear the, the trauma didn't disappear mm. i tried many options and thanks to a very dear friend bbc friend um, alan johnston mm. who had a similar um, experience in uh, was it Gaza. Palestine in yes. Gaza. So he had a, knew somebody, a counselor, someone in London who was known to be uh, able to edit your dreams. That really sounds weird, but so how before going to bed, what you could do to edit your dreams that you would not have those nightmares. And those editing helped, and for a year or so, I thought they disappeared. But I realized that they really are locked, zipped files folded there. Yeah. And each time, like now that I open it, my voice changes, that feeling comes and comes. I mean, I'm quite a lot controlling myself that that when I talk about it, it, it immediately takes it's like a fresh folder. When you open your on your phone, when you zip something and you yeah. open those files, they, they are same quality photos, but they are zipped. So those things are literally there. Are you feeling it now? I don't know. Um, um, Shway, that, I'm sorry. Uh, no, that's fine. I I try it. When I said that, I said I'll try not to cry because in, I don't see anything wrong in crying. I think you need quite a lot of crying. I think it's so important to cry, because Shway. Use, I think the word of advice would be not to zip it. Yeah. To, to talk about it and to when you... Often when I cry, I feel lighter. But it is there, so that that is it's so fresh. I mean, it's gone. The yes. fear is not there. I have survived, but um, um, it is so f fresh um, when you when you open it, and it's good to open it. You're right, and it's that. Yeah. Uh, the thing is that I I do not talk about it in to my wife, to my kids, mm. because you when you are the head of the family, you really need to appear firm and strong yeah and or maybe it's a your wrong perception maybe because i said a bit of that i told a bit of that to my um to my son i said you know what in captivity uh, and uh, i talked about the 1500 dollars only one part of that and I said, oh dad that was equivalent of three playstations you give them and it's so easy <laughs> <laughs> You could have said other things, could you not? <laughs> so, I mean, why I'm saying this weird example is that you really need a good listener. You really should yeah. talk about it. Mm. Um, and it helps. And uh, 
Also, a bit of you really hide it because, sorry, with this profession, yeah. we see quite a lot. We really see quite a lot. Mm. And we, we as journalists, that being objective is an, a, of course, it's a good thing, but it's also our enemy that it's telling me that tribe, you're objective. You, whatever you see, should not affect you, carry on. Yeah. <laughs> and that objectiveness also makes you lock things in quite yes, a lot yes compartmentalize yes. shut down be strong yeah be strong and you have to tell the story you you shouldn't be affected by story yes. well you're not a robot you're you're at the end of the human being as well you are affected by story but i mean we do try um because that burden of object objectiveness i have i uh, just before the interview, talked about that frontline hospital. I can never forget that little child. That I was making a film about a frontline hospital, and it was a triage situation. So many war wounded were brought, mm. and I saw a seven-year or nine-year-old little boy with blood, soaked hands with blood. And I left the camera and rushed to help the boy. And he was assuring me, "Don't worry, don't worry. It's my mother's blood. My mother was shot." And that shocked me because I saw. That is my son. What if my son says that? Uh, and that, so I've forgotten about quite a lot of I must have seen. So there's lots of there are lots of traumatic moments. Moments that they get locked and imprinted saved, on the brain. Imprinted on the brain that they can can never be that can never disappear. So you either have to leave the camera, go and help, or because you're there to tell the story. Telling the stories also could help. So you always have that balance. I mean, I what, what strikes me, you telling me, you sharing this story, this incredibly personal, traumatic story with us, and that you've spoken to me about bits of it before, and you've spoken to me about other traumatic stories before, and every time you do, what strikes me is your sense of humour. And it's funny because you can, you make me laugh and you make people laugh that the, the absurdity of moments and the humor in moments but that pain is not very far behind it how do you manage that pain and you manage to see the humor in this at the same time well the the humor is you my true uh, sense of myself and yeah. the perhaps that is the shield it's like a shield that receives so many bullets and it has, still has to um, your protective uh, for, mechanism uh, yeah to stand firm but it would have scars yeah yeah your defense mm. that is your defense and uh, i think uh, the moment uh, so that uh, the sense of humor um, even in that story the if i fast forward the very last day when they wanted to release us, they said, okay, now we want to release you and we want to please you. Before release you, we want to please you. And we said, oh my God, what are, you, what are they going to do? So the sense of humor is with every human being. Some yeah. lock it because of their nature of job requires it. So they're Taliban, they need to appear angry. Some, they release yeah. it because they, are, they have this, these uh, free boundaries. How did they please you? They left and they said they would come back and collect it to please you. And we started worrying. So each one had their assumptions of what they're going to do. And 
the other two said, oh my God, I, uh, what are they going to do? Are they going to make us something, do something? What would our men well, in the mountain do? Maybe, what is their perception of the people of the tarmac? Maybe they have got a total misunderstanding. And the other guy, uh, person said, I think they're going to rape us. And I said, oh my God, I'm going to kill myself and kill them. If they... <laughs> and one of which said, don't kill them. <laughs> in a way, in a joking, meaning way. Said, <laughs> Getting back at you. <laughs> yeah. So they took us. They come and they took us a few hours down to another room. This time there was some mattress. That at least it was not a barn. And we were waiting for them to come and please us. They entered the room one after another, this time three or four of them, with something big and covered with uh, with a cover. So it appeared like a bigger RPG, uh, rocket, rocket launcher, but big. Mm-hmm. And they opened that. And what is there? Guess what? What? It's a musical instrument. They call it Japanese. It's a, a, a dutar, so it's a double string instrument. And they said, look, this is our secret and music is forbidden uh, in that valley as well. But, uh, so they were is... rebellious talibs. And Well, they said, we thought that you're good people and we feel sorry. And this is uh, how we could entertain the people of the tarmac. So they that used that uh, one of the guys, uh, Osman, played uh, that and said, please do not talk about it. <laughs> there's there's these beauty doors. in that. It, they didn't. They didn't execute you. Instead, they played music. To yeah. You. So they 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 perhaps wanted that a happy ending to that uh, film. Schwab, you are constantly in the line of fire and in danger in your work, but you keep on doing what you're doing. Why do you continue? Well, um, I I really love the profession. I think if 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 a profession that you really are passionate about. You would carry on, but I think I don't know if I was born and grown up uh, in Britain whether I would have done that or not. I think the country that I come from still have a lot of st- stories to be told to the world. I think perhaps that really makes me that we have decades of deprivation of our stories to be told, our true image to really to be told to the world. And that really makes me that the beauty, that that sense of humor, that richness that I'm aware of that Afghanistan, I'm saying this still inside that pile of fire, there's beauty inside that I really have to go and tell that story. And also how much the people of the world really should feel responsible that those beautiful humans in Afghanistan now who are unfortunately one third of them will be suffering from starvation really need assistance and it's a joint we are one world and there's a joint responsibility that if those people are really helped they could be successful people like anybody else in that neighborhood that they would have so that would perhaps make me that the richness of my country that I should carry on it's the right profession to be there and tell the stories if there's one piece of wisdom you've learned from doing this job and facing death and danger in the way that you have and you do what is it? I think that would be that if you really th- wish high, you think high or for something that you can achieve it. I would say this for teenagers, for that tribe who was 16 year old and was listening to the BBC, imitating just for the accent. I have been listening and listening to the BBC world. If I fast forward that 20 years down the line, um, in 2018 and 19, I happened to be also reporting for the English service of the BBC. And one day, Ramita, I was in the 
in a car, listening to the car radio at BBC World, and I heard the presenter said, our, our reporter Shwaib Sharifi reports from Kabul. And I was shocked. I was jolted. I really asked the driver, I want to go home. I went, sit in front of my mom. I hadn't noticed that, that the BBC I was recording to uh, imitate as a 16-year-old. I would never, ever thought that as a real, my voice would come from the same speaker one day. And I went so unnoticed until that moment triggered that. And I went, said the same story to my mother, that, mother, thank you, thank whoever. I would say, I just noticed today that when I was a teenager, I was listening to that radio. And from that speaker, many times my voice must have come out and I didn't notice. But at that note, point, I noticed that if if you really are tenacious and really want anything, work for it, you would really achieve it. And what about um, the experience of of facing death? What's the one piece of wisdom you've taken from that? Love your family members every single moment. Every single moment. Do not leave it that, okay, today I'm sad, tomorrow we'll be happy, so let's leave a few days of sadness. I would say every really moment counts. Just live it with love, with full love. Shweb, that's a beautiful message to end on. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Thank you. To learn more about Schwab's work, I suggest watching the outstanding documentary he produced and co-directed called My Childhood, My Country, 20 Years in Afghanistan. It's a remarkable piece of work filmed over two decades as Schwab documents the life of a boy called Mir while charting the evolution of his country since 9-11. You can watch it on ITV Online. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Line of Fire. If you'd like to follow me, my Twitter handle is at Ramita Navai. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and subscribe. And tell your friends they can find us wherever they get their podcasts. Until next time. The Line of Fire is a podcast from Aura Studios. It was presented by me, Ramita Navai, and edited and produced by Chris Scott. Our executive producers are Matt Raz and Richard Osman.